Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Eddie, detangling our Black identities. I am your host, Eddie Etty. Like always, I am excited, thrilled for you to be joining our journey to explore all the different shades of Black identities, have real conversations and discussions. And like always, our conversations, stories, and discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, or prove a point. Exploring Black identities is all about learning, empowering, and giving people a voice to tell their stories, and at times be a voice for those people who don't feel comfortable telling their stories. Hashtag, not all Black people are the same. Hey, listen, today I am super thrilled to have with me a phenomenal woman, someone who has been in the DEI space for a really long time. She spent most of her life just making sure people are feeling included in different spaces. She has created spaces for minorities, especially Blacks, to feel at home. Um, and I mean, she is currently um, the Chief Diversity Officer and Associate Vice President for Community Equity and Diversity at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, she used to be the executive director for the Center for Diversity Enrichment at the University of Iowa. Um, hey, listen, I have Nadine Petty with me today, um, has a bachelor's, a master's degree from University of Rochester, New York, did a PhD in educational leadership and organizational development from the University of Louisville in Kentucky, a native of Jamaica, I mean, Nadine has done it all, and I am thrilled that she's here on the edge with Eddie. Nadine, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Eddie. I'm happy to be here. Great, great. Well, you know, so you recently, um, you were, so you were in Iowa for a couple years, and then you moved to New Hampshire. Now, if I am correct in my thinking, Iowa is a pretty white, um, um, state. New Hampshire, I think it's a wider state, <laughs> right? You're correct. You're correct. So I was in Iowa for five years and then took the opportunity to take this position I'm currently in to move to New Hampshire. And it is absolutely wider. Um, so I, I'd give you an example. The institution that I'm in, the, the Black population is, is less than it, it, it hovers about 1%. Um, oh. There are some communities in New Hampshire which point seven percent it's not even a full one percent so it's it wow. is extremely 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 wide yes yeah so wh why would you move from a university of iowa which i think the black population here is roughly three percent um mm -hmm. um to a space where there's less black people mm -hmm. um what what went into that decision besides you know a great opportunity for you yeah um it was on the east coast and so there's a difference between midwestern culture Mm. and East Coast culture. And so what I learned um, just in my time working, I, I was in the Midwest, um, so not just Iowa, we're talking like uh, Illinois, Missouri. I was in the Midwest for a long time, 12, 13, 14 years in different roles and capacities in higher ed. And, you know, Midwestern culture can be, regardless of how diverse the space is, it can be extremely challenging in the diversity realm as far as people actually buying into the value of inclusion and the value of 
um, acceptance and tolerance. And, and that can be harder in certain spaces. Um, I grew up on the East Coast for the most part. And so I was familiar with the culture of the East Coast. And the East Coast in general has a more welcoming, um, progressive attitude towards race and towards difference and towards people with marginalized identities. And so I was looking forward to being in a space where I felt that I could um, move the needle, <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense, where I can move the needle. Yeah, yeah huh. it makes perfect sense. So uh, before we start, we start talking about, you know, sort of the cultures of the United States, you know, East Coast versus West Coast versus Midwest. Again, it, it's a thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the people in those spaces don't actually think it's a thing. There is a Midwest uh, this Iowa nice or Midwest nice um, that people don't actually think it exists, but it does exist. Mm-hmm. We will talk about all of that in a little bit, but give me a little background. Um, you moved from Jamaica when you're very little um, to the States. Can mm-hmm. you tell me a little bit about, you know, the transition with your family and how, you know, your parents being from Jamaica coming to the United States and how you were raised in a household with Jamaican parents? Yes, yes. And so it was my mom, my sister and myself. My sister's a year older. Um, So I came to the States when I was three or four. And, you know, my mom and I and and my sister, we moved into a house that was owned by my aunt. And so we lived in this house that had my aunt and all my cousins and my grandmother and my uncle. And so it it was everybody. (laughs) There were probably 13 or 14 of us being in this one house. And and I think the, the transition for me was easier because I was younger, I was so young. But I remember the challenges, particularly for my mom, the biggest challenge was coming into a space, you know, as someone who had lived in Jamaica her entire life. So here's a woman now who was in her, at the time, um, late 30s, coming into the United States, having to find work and then having to adapt to a culture that was very different from hers. And um, I didn't really understand until I was much later because I had to kind of go through it myself, right? Because I was being raised by a Jamaican mother. I was being, you know, surrounded by Jamaican aunts and uncles. And, and what I knew was sort of the Jamaican way of being. And that didn't always interpret itself or translate itself very well in American culture. And so, right. you know, I can remember, you know, instances, even how I pronounced my words. I, I, I'll give you one example. When I was in kindergarten, okay, right. we, were, we were doing this fruits and vegetables lesson, right? Yep. And it was like, identify the fruit, identify the vegetable. And we would raise our hands and, and the teacher would call on whoever to say what fruit or vegetable she was showing a picture of. Yeah. And so there was a cucumber, you know, and I, I raised my hand because I knew what it was. I raised my hand and she said, it's okay, Nadine. And I said, cucumba. Yeah. <laughs> and the entire class just started right. laughing, right? And I'm sitting there like, what? I'm right. It's a cucumber, right. you know? Yep. And she yep. said, no, it's a cucumber. Yep. Yeah. And I'm like, no, that's a cucumber. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just one small example. So there was language barriers. There were just um, some differences in cultural understanding. Like I didn't ever call uh, someone in authority or someone who was an adult by their first name. Yep. But that was something that I saw others do. So there were just things along the line that I had to, to learn and navigate, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense because a lot like so again for me for example um you know one of the things that i had to learn how to do was when i came from when i came to the united states um for me in my culture it was rude to look an adult in the eye or like when somebody is talking to you you can't look them in the eye um but in the united states if you don't look at somebody in the eye when you're talking to them i guess it's rude And even at this point in my life, um, you know, in my 40s and, you know, being a professional and a leader, I still find it hard sometimes to do that. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, so 
talk to me about some of this, um, you know, some of the cultural differences that you experienced besides the language barrier um, growing up um, in the East Coast. Um, you know, are there other things that you just like, I don't understand. Why, why does Americans have to do it this way? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Um, there were differences in just, uh, I, I would say, familial respect. Mm-hmm. And so my, my parents were the say all and be all, right? And so if my mom said something, you know, and, and my, my dad at the time who was with past, my, well, my parents are past right now, but if something was said, whether or not I agreed with it was not the point. If it was said, it was gospel and I did it. And what I noticed right. in American culture, that wasn't always the case. That wasn't generally the case, right? And so um, my peers seem to have more freedom to push back and to say to their parents, you know, I'm not doing that or to negotiate. Um, yep. And that's, and that was extremely, I, I, I don't get it. Like, I totally don't get it. Cause that would have been a butt whooping, you know, right. to say yep. the least, it was just not something that we did. Um, and then there was this uh, thing about allowances. And so I learned, and I was probably in the fifth grade when I, when I learned what an allowance was. And I remember some of my friends talking about an allowance and how much they got. And I, and I was like, what's an allowance? I didn't know what that was. Yeah. And, and so they explained to me what it was. And I went home and I said, oh, well, I want an allowance. And I went home and I told my mom, I was like, hey, mom, you know, my friends get allowances. You know, can I get an allowance? And she looked at me. Right. <laughs> be like I had two heads, right? And she just said, I allow you to live in my house. I allow you to eat my food. Right. That's your allowance, you know. So it was really just a difference in in being, right? A difference in how we would occupy the spaces mm. that we were in and a difference in the expectations of what that occupancy meant. Right. And these seem like little things, but they really permeated. They yep. permeated throughout everything. And I'm and it sure. was sometimes I think it made it hard to feel like I fit in. Um, it made it hard to, because it was a different value system as well. Um, yep. There was a difference between what my mom was gonna spend money on and maybe what other American parents spent money on. And I noticed that all the time with my friends. And so sometimes it was complicated. You yeah. know, it was complicated to, to feel understood um, or to feel like I was part of a circle, even though I was physically there, I didn't quite understand the conversations necessarily or understand the nuances of why certain things were taking place. And so it, it took a lot of years, you know, and then there are days now I'm 46, right. you know, I'm 46 now and there are times that I still step back and I go, yeah, I'm not getting it. <laughs> you know, and I have to make that statement in yeah. the meetings, you know, I'm not getting it. <laughs> I know I am definitely there with you uh, because again, like I said, you know, I, I started this journey trying to identify sort of my intersectionalities and who makes who what makes me who I am um, and all of the different parts of my identity right um, you know and that's the reason why you know again you know in my 40s I'm like you think by now I will know who I am I mean I think I know who I am but it's just you know the the cultural differences that pulls us in so many directions you know sometimes it's hard to pinpoint wow do I need to act this way because I'm in this space especially mm-hmm. being a black man right um so did things get better for you when you started college or was this sort of still the same no when i started college i think it it got worse in some regards i i had a you know i had a close circle of um african-american friends and i had a close circle of caribbean west indian friends and what was interesting was i could never bring the two groups together um and and what i mean by that is is (laughs) There was a certain, there was a certain like um, way of doing things, a way of understanding that my West Indian friends 
had that my African-American friends did not in a certain way of doing and understanding that my African-American friends had that my West Indian friends did not. And there were times where it almost seemed contentious. Yep. <laughs> um, and that was challenging. It was something that actually has carried itself into the role, the current role that I have now. And I saw it also in my role in Iowa where, so I'm black. I am black, but I'm not African-American. I have African ancestry, but I'm not African-American. And so culturally right. I'm different. And there were many times where African-American students or African-American staff would suggest um, a, lack of, a lack of understanding of you know, their plight or their concerns or um, suggest a lack of authenticity mm. when I was fighting for you know, their inclusion or, or equality or fighting against racism. And that was... That was hard. That was hard to, to deal with at times, you know. Um, and every now and then it comes up here as well. It comes up in New Hampshire as well. It, it's, a, it's constantly being reminded that what you're not. It's constantly being reminded of what you are not. Yep. yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I, again, I am definitely with you on that because, again, in, in college, I when I was trying to sort of figure out the whole Black American versus Africa thing, you know, I had some great friends from, you know, the the Caribbeans and the West Indies, and, you know, I it was for me I could I could relate to sort of the West Indies population friends, right? Versus I could with the Black American friends, because again, I think we share the same value, right? Um, mm -hmm. It is the same value system. And it was really hard for me to sort of maintain um, a Black American friends, you know, back in college. Um, and it wasn't because they weren't good friends. I think it was just because there's this misunderstanding um, of, well, this is how we do things and you do things differently. And I just don't understand that, right? And sometimes, you know, they'll look at me or, you know, what you're saying, they'll look at you. And it was just like, it was, it, it was different. The value system is different and how they do things is different. Um, do you think um, sort of that plays into the mentality of like black Americans, right? And I asked that question because, you know, I was having a conversation with, um, uh, you know, one of my friends who is a great generalist, and she mentioned that when she was in the United States from, you know, came from Africa, she saw that the Africans in the United States, they have some sort of um, freedom within themselves, right? Because they know their culture and they know their sort of their lean, uh, background and they're like, you know what, I come from this space, right? Versus the Black Americans, um, again, there's a lot of the year of the return trying to figure out, you know, what part of the different content they came from, you know, so, so for them, trying to find their um, history apart from the slavery is something hard that most of them are struggling with. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, from your perspective, do you think that plays a role in the misunderstanding of the different cultures or value system? I do think it plays a role. I think the fact that um, an individual of color is brought up in the United States is going to, in and of itself, be traumatizing. Mm -hmm. um, it, it has to be, right? The United States is just seeped with a history of racism. It's seeped with a history of, of just oppression for people of color, particularly Black people. It's seeped with anti-Blackness. And so how can you be someone who identifies as Black growing up in the United States, being born here, being educated here, how could you have gotten any other messaging 
right. other than something that's just negative and traumatic and oppressive, because that is just how the country operates in general right. in many spaces. Um, what's really great and what I'm seeing is there are a lot of African-American communities where the parents are realizing the importance, the, the absolute importance of teaching children at home how beautiful their culture is, how beautiful they are, teaching them their history. And so that whatever is taught or left out in yeah. the school systems don't matter as much because they're getting that information at all. And so that's extremely important that I've seen um, to help with that. But, I, but yeah, I, I think that's, that's a part of it. It's not as easy to identify history. It's not as easy to identify lineage. Um, and, and you have to constantly guard yourself, right? It's like walking around with a, with a wall up to guard yourself against just these negative ideas and these negative images and negative stereotypes and negative opinions that people are gonna have just based on their own biases. Um, and how they're going to treat you differently. And you have to just guard against that all the time. And I, I think that's where the difficulty comes from. Um, for someone who is, you know, grown up in a different country, someone who's Black who's grown up in a different culture, in a different environment, they're, they're given something a little bit different, I think, um, in those formative years um, that African-Americans, a lot of them have not been given for all the reasons that I've just explained. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. No. Yeah. I. I you. Uh, you know. There's a lot of times that you know. Um, I wish I could take all of my Black American friends, take them to Ghana, right, and have mm -hmm. them experience what it's like being a majority in the space, right, mm -hmm. walking around and just you know feeling free to sort of do whatever it is that you want to do without being looked at or without being um, somebody looking at you coming to do something or have the, all of those preconceived notions, you know, about you, right? Just because mm -hmm. you're a different skin color. Um, you know, there's many times that I was like, you know what, I, I wish there was a program that would just take a group of people back to like, you know, the, um, the West Indies and the African countries to sort of, so they can experience that culture. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's a thing, maybe we can collaborate on something and <laughs> make that happen. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned the Midwest culture versus East school culture and the difference, right? Um, let's, spend some time talking about the Midwest culture, because again, you were in Illinois and Iowa, you know, in the Midwest for a couple of years, Tell me about the Midwest culture and, <laughs> and the, the value of acceptance in the East Coast versus the Midwest. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be careful how I respond to this. So I, I'm going to say that the Midwest is very similar in my experience. This is, this is my opinion to the South. Mm -hmm. um, the difference between the Midwest and the Deep South, I should say the Deep South, the difference yep. is that in the Deep South, people are not afraid to tell you to your face what it is they're thinking, and they're not afraid to kind of live in the culture right. of the South, right? And so the anti-Blackness is real, it's rapid, everybody knows it, there's no secret. The difference between that and the Midwest is the Midwest is, is very, very racist. It is a very oppressive environment. Um, and... However, there is this falsehood or this pretense mm -hmm. of politeness, of um, neighborliness that is just very surface level. It's not real. It's not authentic. And, and when it, 
push comes to shove, you start to see it. And, and you know, the, what do they say that the chain starts to kink and you start mm-hmm. to see the cracks in the plaster and you're like, oh man. And then you see the realities. There's just a lot of insidious ugliness. And what makes the Midwest hard to navigate because of that is that you really don't know when you're in any particular space mm-hmm. who has your back and who doesn't. Right. You know, who, who is going to treat you with fairness and consideration and who is not, like you really don't know. And regardless of what someone says to you face to face, you don't know what they're saying when the doors close. Yep. And so that's the challenge, I would say, the biggest challenge um, with the Midwest. The East Coast, if someone doesn't like you, if someone's racist, you're going to know. It's, it's very similar to the South. Um, and I think in the East Coast also what's uh, different from the Midwest is that folks just mind their business. Yep. In general, just folks just mind their business. They live their lives. They do what they have to do. They're worried about themselves and their family. And, you know, they're not concerned about what Joe down the street is doing or wearing or saying. And it, and it, it allows for... Um, some ability for people, particularly people who are marginalized, to just be, to just be without question. And that's also very important, I think, for mental health, <laughs> for emotional health, and just to be, be able to be happy when you put down roots in a space. You know, it, <laughs> you're 100% right, because, again, in the Midwest, you know, like I mentioned before, there's this whole Iowa nice, this Midwest nice, right? It, it, there is this the the pressure to be nice to people right and in that niceness a lot of time it's not authentic right like you said mm-hmm. you know someone would tell you something uh, to your face and they would act so nicely and then come to find out either one they didn't mean what they said right or two they actually don't even like you <laughs> right and i've had personal <laughs> experiences that happen and you know somebody like oh my god eddie you're like the nicest guy ever blah 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 and then like you know three days later I'm talking to somebody else and like, oh, did you hear what this guy said about you? Um, and you're right. It does make for a very hard, uh, hard space to navigate because you don't know who is really authentic with their feelings or with their thoughts. Right. Um, but again, like in, in the East Coast, I, I spent some time in New Jersey. What I love about the East Coast is if somebody doesn't like you, you will know they don't like you, right? They don't mm-hmm. They don't usually play around with, oh, well, I kind of like you, but, you know, no, I don't like you, right? Get out of my face. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, they, like, don't even, they don't even have to say it. They're going to roll their eyes. Right, yeah, yeah, this is true. <laughs> they're going to show you attitude. You don't know right away. You don't even have to. They don't have to say a word. It's on the, I mean, you just know, and you're like, all right, cool. You do, right, you, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna stay in my space. You stay in your lane, and we're good. Um, yeah. So you spend, you know, uh, most of your life fighting for um, equality, fighting for um, sort of justice, and f- just fighting for minorities and blacks to have fair treatment, right? Mm-hmm. And even your job now, um, you know, you you are associate vice president for community equity diversity right um how hard it is right how hard is it for someone like you in your role to fight for something that is probably impossible to obtain yeah yeah and it is impossible so it's extremely hard um and it's hard because it's not the kind of job that you can go home and check a box and say, okay, I did that. Mm-hmm. So I'm done. Like here's this project I had to work on. That project is done. So I'm done. Let's move on to a next, next task. It is a never ending. You put a program together, you put an incentive together, you put a, um, 
you know, a policy in place, all of that is just the tip of the iceberg. And it's always the tip of the iceberg because at the end of the day, what you're essentially trying to do is to shift culture and right. to change systems. And that is incredibly difficult. I mean, in order to change systems, you have to dismantle. You have to t take it all apart, rip it apart, and then rebuild it. Um, you know, because we know these systems, systems are not built for black people. It was not, they were not, it was not built for us in mind. Higher education was not built for us in mind and corporations and so forth are not built for us in mind. And so, you know, when we are in those spaces, everything that we're encountering was made for other people, which is why we experienced what we experienced when we were in the space, the microaggressions and the, the feelings of not being included or not being supported is because those institutions were ne never meant to support us. And so they have to be completely dismantled um, and rebuilt and rethought and restructured in order for any real meaningful change to occur because they're really just a reflection of society, right? Any, any business, any um, college or university, it's just, a, it's just a microcosm of what happens in larger society. And so until we get a grip, I mean, we being like all of us really get a grip, we're just gonna keep on with the same challenges and the same struggles. And those struggles are real, <laughs> right? Regardless, yeah, of, they, real. regardless of you know how high you go or what space you're in, um, the fact that you have a shade of a darker skin or your skin is darker, you know, the struggle is real because, you know, a lot of times, you know, people look at you and, you know, they have assumptions, right? Even before they even talk to you or, you know, get to know you, there's those assumptions, um, which makes it, which makes the system, you know, impossible to change. But you mentioned, you know, the culture change and to change, a system, you have to dismantle the system, right? But how do you even go about dismantling a system which has been in place for over 400 years, mm -hmm. set up to sort of benefit one population? And we, as, as in black, um, Blacks, are not even sometimes at this, have a seat at the table mm -hmm. to have the discussion about the culture change and dismantle the system. How do you even go about dismantling such system if you're not even in the same space to dismantle the system? Yeah, so it's, it's one piece at a time, right? Which I know is a very cliche answer, but it's, it's true. And so um, I, I'll give you an example. So one, I would say very easy, like in relation to dismantling, a very easy thing is to look at. You're talking about a sit at the table, well, who's at the table? So you can take any um, institution, let's just talk about colleges and people who work in higher education, you can take any college or university and you can say, who are all the top leaders? Let's look at them. Let's look at the president. Let's look at the vice presidents. Let's look at all the deans. Let's look at the decision makers, you know, the VP of HR. Who are the decision makers? And then you look at the race of all the decision makers. Okay? If the race of all the decision makers are all one race and that one race are all majority group individuals, if they're all white, for example, then that's a system that needs dismantling, right? Because you have a lens that is perpetuating itself in every decision, every policy, everything that comes out of the executive team is going to be kind of one-sided. And so one very easy step is, let's see where we can take some of these positions and put someone of color in there instead so that we have some difference of opinion, so that we have some differences of lens, so that we have people paying attention to things that traditionally have not been paid attention to. That's one way of dismantling. I mean, another way of dismantling really is to take every policy, um, 
that the university had and to, to go through it with a fine tooth comb, to go through each and every policy and say, who does this benefit? Who does it hurt? And where you find spaces where it's harmful to individuals, you make changes to those protocols and to those policies. Um, those are just some very generic ways. But when I say dismantle, I mean from who is being represented in the executive leadership yep. to, you know, to the policies themselves, to the even, you know, the holidays that we're celebrating versus holidays we're not celebrating, you know, the, the time off that students have versus the time off that they don't. I mean, it really is top to bottom. Yeah. Um, and then who gets to make the decisions about which holidays are important, which religious observances are important, and all, all the way down to the bottom. So part of the problem I have with higher ed is um, when people get into those spaces, they don't leave, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, people get into sort of the leadership space and they kind of stay there forever. And so, you know, turn around in academia, unless it, it, unless you're a black individual, which people, you know, move around a lot, um, turn around is hard. You know, so again, you're talking about dismantling the problem and looking at the senior leadership um, as, you know, again, representation matter, right? Is senior leadership the correct representation of the institution? Um, but people don't leave. And if people don't leave, who is actually going to give up their white privilege to have somebody else represented in the executive committee to actually make those decisions, right? That's one thing. The other question is accountability, right? You talked about policies and changing policies, but there's no holding people accountable, right? So again, if I am you know, a leader in some space and there's a policy says that says I should do this, I can go ahead and not do that. And I know that no one is going to hold me accountable. Um, speak a little bit to the accountability and how we need to, or what kind of mechanisms we need to have in place to hold those individuals accountable for not following the policies that you talked about. And two, what can we do about the people who don't actually ever leave <laughs> if we're going to dismantle <laughs> if we're going to dismantle the executive leadership team and nobody ever leaves and they've been there for like 20 30 years <laughs> okay so it is true that executive leaders don't turn over as quickly as other positions it's not every two three years right. maybe every 10 15 20 years but they do turn over they do take other opportunities they do retire so any kind of it's, it's so i'm not trying to propose that this is easy or quick or like a tomorrow fix. It is a sort of a long-term fix. But as soon as these leaders start to step out of their position, that's when you start to look at difference and start figuring out how can you get somebody in the position that's different from, historically different from anyone else who's ever filled it. And so I, I give you two prime examples, okay? The first example is the University of Louisville. They have hired their first female president who is a minority. She, she identifies as someone from in, India, I believe. Um, <clears throat> And that's huge because prior to that, all the presidents were white males. That's huge. Okay, that, that's, that's a start. Yep. And it took however many, you know, hundreds of years, yes, but it's a right. start. And so now we have a woman of color who's a president. Um, at the University of New Hampshire, the president is a white male. We've had only white presidents, but he is being very, very mindful of putting people of color into leadership positions. And so he hired in a black male as a VP for student life. Um, 
I don't even count my position because, you know, CDOs are generally people of color anyway. And it's right. kind of a given that right. there's going to be somebody of color in that position. But we have a black male who is a VP of student life. We had a black female who is a director of um, counseling services, who is now the interim dean of students. Um, and so these types of very, very intentional hires is what I'm talking about. We, you know, I, I work with um, the provost to put a system in place for faculty hiring. And the faculty is not executive level, but you have to start getting faculty members of color in certain spaces as well and allowing them the opportunity to be you know, department chairs and to kind of move up in the ranks from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor. And none of that's going to happen if we just keep hiring the same people. The same, right. You know, you, you got <laughs> Yeah. I mean, come on, it needs common sense, but for others, it, it needs some convincing. So we're working on the convincing part. Um, <laughs> that seems to be the, the toughest job of any CEO is the convincing part. So let, let me push back a little bit. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, the hiring um, sort of, you know, people of color or black people in those spaces. Um, there is the notion of um, trophy black people, right? Mm -hmm. You know, by that, you know, again, if the, the, the my friends and the listeners who are listening who don't know what a trophy black person is, is there is a type of black individuals that you know white people feel very comfortable with, right? You know they they're very you know they're very structured in a certain way, and those are the sort of individuals that you know you know sometimes institutions hire because they're comfortable with that individual, with how they present themselves, and how they look, how they dress, you know how they wear their hair, you know straight, and all of those things, right? Um, do you think there's an issue with uh, sort of institution hiring those people and putting them in that space and checking the box and say, oh, you know what? Yeah, we have several diversity black people hired and, you know, we're good. But realistically, they're not because the individual that they hire is really just there not to challenge the status quo, right? But just to, you know, be a reflection of, oh, yeah, we have somebody represented and that's good, right? Um, so again, that's one. The other thing is empowerment, right? So, you you know, again, I'll, let me let you talk about the trophy Black people, and then I can ask about the empowerment of those individuals in the spaces. Yeah. And so is your question, is it a problem? Is that initially what you're asking, the trophy Black people? Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, my, my question is the trophy Black people that they hire into those spaces, um, you know, do you see that as a problem, first of all, or do you mm -hmm. see that as truly a representation of the population mm -hmm. or is it really just checking a box? Yeah, it, it's, it's checking the box and it is a problem because here is the truth about um, diversifying spaces. And when we say to someone, we're going to hire diversity, we want to have this diversity initiative and you have institutions, you know, yeah, let's do this, this is a great idea and they wanna be on the right side of history. What tends to happen is exactly what you're talking about. So if we're talking specifically about black people, they hire in black people that are more like themselves. And so that are more maybe white presenting or white sounding or that might, you, you know, not rock the boat <laughs> so much when it comes to that. And so essentially what the message is, is we will hire someone who is diverse as long as they behave like a guest in our house, mm. okay? And yeah. so if you think about guests in your house, they don't put their feet on the furniture, they don't mm. open the refrigerator door, 
They're, right. they're on their P's and Q's because they're a guest. They're not going to be spilling stuff in your car because if you do, you might not ask them back, right? Yep. And so they're guests in the house. They're never going to be part of the family, right? They're not going to be asked to put their feet on the furniture. They're not going to be comfortable doing so because there's going to be a consequence for that. They're not going to be asked to go to the refrigerator and open the door or open the cupboards, right? Because there's going to be a consequence for that. Yep. So until institutions start hiring in people, specifically Black people, who are not guests, right? And not treated as guests, but are treated as actual members of the space. I think what you're gonna keep getting are people, trophy black people, people who essentially don't rock the boat. And so the metaphor would be don't put their foot in the furniture, don't go to the refrigerator without permission. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to really be in a space. So true inclusiveness is being able to hire someone because of their skill sets. Yeah. Simply that, because of their skill sets, they've got the skill sets, they can do the work, they'd be amazing in this position, regardless of how they weigh their hair, regardless of their skin tone, regardless of their speech patterns, regardless of how they dress, they can do the work. And we're not there yet. I don't think we're there yet. Um, not in general, not as an institution. There's some individual spaces that are there, but as an institution, I don't think we're fully there um, in higher ed. And so it is problematic because it does perpetuate Racism, right? So yep, yep. hiring children of black people perpetuates yep. racism. And it's counterintuitive, but that's exactly what it does. Right. Yeah. Now, so again, the other the other piece is empowerment, right? So again, you know, like you said, you know, when somebody's a guest at your house, um, they are a guest and they sit there quietly and you know they ask for things and if they want to do something, oh, please, where's the bathroom? Can I go to the bathroom? Can I use your bathroom? Or you know, may I have some water to drink? You know, like again, I haven't really ever thought about it like that, but that's exactly what it is. You know, mm -hmm. they ask permission to do something because they're in your house house right versus if somebody is not a guest in your house they're more welcome in your house um you know they have the freedom to actually move about which you know goes into the whole space of you know dei um, the diversity equity and inclusion uh, for me well from my personal experience you know i believe a lot of higher ed institutions spend time on the diversity piece and not making sure that equity and inclusion is, you know, is, is done right, right? Um, you know, so for your example, it's like, you know, DEI, like the diversity pieces, you know, inviting somebody for dinner, um, equity is making sure they can get to the dinner, right? And then when they get to the dinner, inclusion is making sure they feel that they're at home, part of the conversation at the dinner table. Um, but like you said, a lot of times people are feeling guests. So the question now is, how do we, from your point of view, empower the individuals that we are hiring or inviting to our house? How do we empower them to actually carry out the, the sort of their responsibility to create, you know, diverse spaces or make people feel more included um, at home so they don't feel like they're a guest? You know, what sort of things do we need to do to empower them in higher Mm -hmm. To empower those who have been hired, correct, or to empower those who are doing okay, those who are who have been hired. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a difficult question because I think there's a risk that any individual, particularly individuals who identify as black, will take um, if they stop behaving like a guest in, in a house. I mean, that's just the truth. Let's just be real, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is that is our reality. So I think the empowerment really is going to have to come with whoever that person's supervisor is, whoever that person's 
colleagues are, um, wherever that person is situated in that space, the empowerment will have to come there because I can empower myself, for example. I could be hired into a space and say, man, I'm not going to take any of that foolishness. I'm going to you know, say what's on my mind. I'm going to do what I need to do. But we know that there's a consequence for that. So unless yeah. I make that choice and have support from my supervisor and have support from my colleagues who are going to say, yeah, we have your back and really have my back, um, that empowerment, although I may feel empowered and, and, and be able to do that, it, it's going to come at a cost. And that cost is generally, I'm going to get out of the job. You know, and I may very well be blacklisted down the road because then I will have a reputation that I built for myself. And so that's a very challenging thing. Um, so this is, this, is, this is much wider than us, right? This becomes colleague, collegial. It becomes collegial. And yeah. can we be afforded the freedom to be authentic in any particular space? And that's really what it boils down to. Can we? Can we? I, I say we should. We should yeah. be afforded that free, freedom. Yeah. But what is the reality of that? And it looks different depending on where each person is. Right. But what is the reality of that? Yeah. I mean, so yeah. <laughs> I ask the question, can we? Because, again, we go, we, we're back to the system, right? A system created um, to sort of benefit in a specific group. Um, now we're talking about changing that system and changing that culture to benefit another group. And when we start doing that, people will have to give up things, right? By giving up things, I'm talking about giving up some sort of white privilege, right? Giving up some sort of, you know, things that you're used to giving up before somebody else can benefit. So for example, you know, having, you know, all white individuals in an executive team, um, removing one white individual and bringing in, you know, a black person is giving up, you know, that, in, that white individual, right? Um, you know, so again, there are consequences of doing that, um, you know, and sometimes I feel that as a black leader, the challenge is regardless of how, how myself I want to be, like you said, there's always that mentality that, oh, I always have to be careful, right? And I always have to be careful on what I say. I always have to be careful on how I do things because I could lose my job. And that's not the same for a lot of, um, you know, our, uh, our white colleagues and, you know, leaders in the spaces. Um, will you say that's true? That is, that is true. That is very, very true. Yeah. And I will say that even in my position, I, I have a position of some leverage and some power that I, I, I choose my words very carefully when I'm in board meetings, when I'm in executive meetings, when I'm in leadership meetings, when I'm, you know, doing um, presentations and, and Q and A's with the public. I, I answer as honestly and transparently as I can, but I'm always choosing my words because I'm very, very aware of my positionality. I mean, I am still at the end of the day, you know, associate vice president is a title, right? but I am aware of the fact that I am a black woman, you know? And, and so I, I have to temper certain things because of that. And it's unfortunate, but that, that is the space that I operate in. The future is bright. I'm hoping um, because it seems that there is um, sort of the younger generation or this generation, you know, is now really aware of sort of the injustices that are happening, right? And so there's, at least from my perspective, it looks like there's a push to, for more understanding, right? And I'm hoping that, you know, this push would carry out in, for generations, you know, to come. Um, in, in your role right now, what do you see as, or where do you see students 
um, or how do students play a role in making sure you know, the movement or we move the needle a little bit from what it used to be to sort of creating an inclusive space for everybody. Because again, I, I think it's going to be the next generation that really continues the fight, right? Um, where, do you see, where do you see this? Uh, how do you see this playing out? With yeah, I <laughs> absolutely agree with you, Eddie. It, it is the next generation. They're not only continuing the fight. I believe the needle is going to be moved the most with the next generation coming up. Um, so I, I'll tell you, on our campus right now, on the UNH campus, the leaders of the Black Lives Matters movement, they're students. Right. These, are, these are college, these are undergraduate students who are taking up the gambit, who are leading marches and leading protests and, you know, initiating conversations with administration saying, this is not acceptable. Um, we need to change. We need to do more. We need to be better. And if it weren't for the students, I'm not sure how much movement we would, we would be having just in that small space. And Iowa was the same thing. I mean, and you know, our Iowa students are very, very, very vocal and very, very, very active. And so um, is there a hope? I, yeah, I, I would absolutely say so. There are changes happening now, right? There are, and I don't want to, this is not all doom and gloom, right? Changes right. <laughs> have occurred. There's progress. There's forward movement. Um, there's a lot at the end of the tunnel, but the journey is still kind of long. And I think that our students, our undergraduate students now, I mean, they're, they are ripe and primed to take over and to, to yep. make changes in ways that my generation and generations before, you know, before me are not and have not been. And so, you know, it'd be interesting to see. And you know, I want to retire. I want to retire one day, put my feet up on the furniture and look and see what these kids right. are doing. Yeah. You know, well. I think it's going to be great. But again, you know, you can be comforted that you had a part to play in this. Um, again, you know, you've been fighting, you know, this fight for a really long time. You know, all the work that you've done, all the programs that you've started and all the collaboration, you know, part of that is all about, you know, sowing a seed, right? Um, you know, so again, you know, I can confidently say you've sowed a lot of seeds and, you know, they're going to grow and, you know, change the world. So, you know, kudos, kudos for all the great things that you're doing. Hey, hey, again, we're on the edge with Dr. Nadine Petty, Chief Diversity Officer and Associate Vice President for Community, Equity, and Diversity at the University of New Hampshire. She was also the former Executive Director for the Center for Diversity and Enrichment at the University of Iowa. Um, great discussion. You know, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, so I'm going to give you about a minute, right? So what I do is I give everybody one minute to tell the world or give a message to the world, right? As a black woman in your role, I want you to give a message to the world in one minute. What do you want the world to hear from Dr. Nadine Petty in one minute? I'm gonna give you some background music. So- <laughs> <laughs> You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, well, I'll give you yep, one minute, it's all yours. <laughs> All right, so what I would say is that no matter, no matter what, I would say keep your chin up, keep your eyes forward, keep your eyes on the prize, and don't let anyone or any situation define who you are. So you have to know your own worth um, and live that worth and live your truth. And that is the message that I would say. Awesome, Harlem. Hey, be yourself, know your worth, live the truth, be authentic. You had it from Dr. Nadine Petty. Thank you so much for joining us. I wish you all the best in your new role. 
um, it was absolutely sad to see you go, like I said, but I am so happy for you because again, you know, you're in a space that you can create um, safe spaces for other people and, you know, you are going to do an amazing job. I can't wait to see what um, the future holds for you and I am going to be stalking you, following you um, <laughs> <laughs> because you are going to do amazing things out there and, you know, I, I want to be part of those amazing things. So if there's anything I can do to help in the process, please let me know. Um, again, thank you so much for being on the edge with Teddy. It was a pleasure talking to you and we'll definitely uh, chat later. So. You as well. Take right. care. Yeah. Bye.